0: Live. Live from. New York. To New York. This is the Just End the Suffering podcast. Wait
1: for the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle. Follow me. Follow me for freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. Phillips.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just on the Suffering podcast for New York Sports Talk long Suffering fam. Your host, Mike Phillips, got a good show for you this week. We are still working on our Jets episode. That's going to come next week. We're going to take some time today to dive into the captain again. Episodes five and six aired last Thursday. I'm going to be joined my friend Joe Chad. We're going to break down the episodes, look ahead to what we could be looking forward to in the finale here coming up this week. So, captain special this week. I'll stick, stick around to the end of the show for these two minute drills. Talk about Katie's ultimatum of the Brooklyn Nets and. It's it's pretty ballsy, I gotta say that. And I got my own thoughts. I'll get to that at the end of the show. If you like what you're hearing on the Just and the Suffering podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the dual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering your favorite podcast platforms. You can follow episodes there. Also leave your feedback and star ratings will help make the podcast even better going forward. You'll check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You have video versions of the conversations on the podcast set up on YouTube, including this chat with Joe Chaffee about the captain. That's going to be up on the YouTube channel as well. And without any further ado, we're going to go ahead to our opening tip. we got to recap what was a huge weekend for the Mets over the Braves against at City Field. We'll recap that five-game series right after this. Three,
1: two, one. Y'all ready for this?
0: The opening
1: tip. And here we go.
0: All right, opening tip time. I got to talk about the Mets here. The Mets, going into last Thursday, had a huge series on top of the Atlanta Braves. This has been a pennant race from most of the summer. The Mets had the 10 and a half game lead in the end of May. Braves cut it down to a huge June. Come into City Field down two and a half games. The Mets make a statement. They win four out of five. They stretch their lead in the National League from two and a half games to six and a half games. Big seven the lost column. They win last night against the Reds. They get a full seven games in the standings here. And the Braves get handed their first three-game losing streak of the season. So, impressive form here from the Mets. And if you watch these games, you could tell this was an absolute beatdown. Apart from the first two innings on Friday night, when Ty Wallen-Walker didn't have it, the Braves scored eight runs. It was pretty much all Mets all the time. The tone of the series really like, got set on Thursday night. The Mets got a huge start from Carlos Carrasco. Got six strong innings out of him. Buck Schrold ends up going to Edwin Diaz for six outs to get that win. Buck is also using him in one-inning you know, want to keep him fresh for the whole year long. But he did see the moment here because he brings in Diaz in the eighth inning to go through the heart of the Braves order. He does 11 pitches. Then he says, you know what? I'm gonna send him out to the ninth. I want this game to start the series off. He gets it, and it values the series a lot. It values that game a lot. It sets the tone because we saw him do the same thing in the Yankees series. He brings in Diaz for multiple outs. Make sure I want that first game. And he gets the first game. That's got plenty of clutch hits over the course of the series. Whereas Pete Alonso, Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, Daniel Vogelback, Darren Ruff, you can name it. Guys are coming through with big hits. The offense was grinding these at-bats out. They knocked out several of the Brave stars early. They made a ton of great defensive plays. They got excellent pitching, including back-to-back gems. From Max Scherzer Saturday night, Jacob DeGrom Sunday afternoon. Scherzer allowed his four hits over seven innings. He struck out 11. That's the kind of big money start the Mets envisioned when they signed him in the offseason. Sunday was an event in Citi Field. It was Jacob DeGrom... Returns to City Field for his first start in over a year. And we go in knowing, okay, he's on a pitch count today, six innings, 75 pitches. He nearly went 18 for 18 on batters here. Using just his fastball slide. He did not throw the change up. He threw one get me over curveball. The slider itself was deadly. Jacob DeGrom got 18 swings and misses the first time he threw it. He did run out of gas at the end. He walks the 18th batter. He gives up a Homer gets taken out of the game, but it's okay. You're still being built up, and he showed some brilliance throughout that game. This series also, I think for the general public, the Mets fans have known how good Edwin Diaz has been this year. This is the series where Edwin Diaz arrives in the baseball world as a star. He files up the 6 out after on Thursday, gets a quick save Saturday afternoon when the Mets try to not use him. Juan Lopez get, can't get out of the ninth. Diaz comes in gets throws seven pitches. Comes back on Sunday, strikes out the side, picks up his third save of the series, and that great shot from Sny on Twitter with the narco blasting and the trumpets and the cameraman following Edwin Diaz in and the fans going crazy. That was awesome. This is a phenomenal result for the Mets overall. They absolutely pummeled a Braves team that has been crushing the league for two months, and the Braves are not happy about that. They were very salty after this series, and throughout the series, you saw a lot on Twitter. The Braves broadcasts were whining about the Mets being lucky. How they're getting calls, how the replay room was favoring the Mets in New York, blah, 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 blah. You expect that from the broadcasters who are very much homers down there. It's from the fans. Some of the quotes going to the Atlanta clubhouse are wild. Check out what Spencer Strider, Sunday starter, had to say after this game, after he got shelled by the Mets. You know, a
1: lot of weird hits. Um, yeah, they uh, seem to be having a lot of luck right now offensively, so... Um, that's great. It's August. Um, see what, see what things are like
0: in October. So let's be clear. Spencer Strider on Sunday pitched two and two thirds innings. You have four runs. You have six hits, gave up two walks and threw 79 pitches. You were awful, dude. You don't get to whine about the Mets being lucky. Because the Mets have been putting the ball in play the entire series. And he was not done. Another quote from Strider here. Cursey, a friend of the podcast, Justin Toscano. Former Matt B. is now covering the Braves, the Atlanta General Constitution. Strider said, quote, I don't know. It helps when they're getting calls and 1-1 one, one counts turn to 2-1 counts instead of 1-2 counts. and Stuff like that. When your BABIP is 330, 30 3 as a team, it's tough to get quick innings and get quick outs. So for the uninitiated on the C. R. front, BABIP is batting average on balls in play. Basically, Spencer Stryer is trying to tell you the Mets are getting lucky and they're getting calls from the umpire. So not our fault we lost. Earth to Spencer, the Mets do not strike out like you guys do. The Braves struck out 19 times on Sunday, 22 times over the two games on Saturday, 10 more times Thursday night. When you put the ball and play like the Mets do, good things can happen. If you hit the ball, it could bounce off a bag and, and bounce into the outfield. It could drop in. If you're striking out, you're not doing anything. Blaming the umpires is also very, very weak. The Braves got the benefit of a big call on Sunday afternoon. Remember the Brandon Nimmo play in Miami the where he went down on a line at the second base and didn't get tagged properly, ends up going to second. The correct call is made in Miami. They missed the call in Atlanta. They called it out anyway. The Braves got the benefit of that call. I didn't hear the luck on that front. Blaming the umpires is weak. It's the loser mentality. It's just going to show you that they lost something out of that clubhouse last year. I did not get as much whining last year from the Braves. On the whole, though, the Mets are in an interesting spot here. They have a very interesting few weeks ahead. After they finish the series with the Reds, they have a day off Thursday. They have 13 games in 12 days after that. No off days in that stretch. Here's what they are. Three at home against against the Phillies at Citi Field to wrap up this homestand, the Red Hot Phillies. Four in Atlanta. And these are the last four games that the Mets will see the Braves until the, about the last weekend of the radio season. Four in Philly over three days. days—a doubleheader in there on Saturday. They got for a rainout earlier in the year. And then two in the Bronx against the Yankees here. If the Mets get through this stretch here, where they're playing probably most of the tough teams left in their schedule. They're done with the Phillies after this. They're done with the Yankees after this. They have only three games left in Atlanta after that. They have a similar lead to the one they have now. Say it's, you know, five, six, maybe it's eight. The division is essentially over because only nine of the Mets' final 37 games come against winning teams. Nine of 37. They have the Dodgers coming for three to City Field the end of August, early, and the first day of September. They go to Milwaukee for three, and the Brewers are fading fast, and they go to Atlanta for three. There's a lot of bad teams coming up here. A lot of Rockies, a lot of Pirates, a lot of Cubs, a lot of Marlins, a lot of Nationals, Oakland's in there. The wins are going to be piling up here. So the that the Mets took care of business here, built that division lead back up. It is absolutely massive for them this season. We'll keep an eye on this situation up here. We'll keep an eye on the Mets, how they get through these next few weeks. Up next, we're going to get to the captain with Joe Chaffee right after this. All right, we are back here on the podcast, recapping episodes five and six of the captain joining me today. Big Yankee fan. I haven't heard from him a little bit. Joe Chaffee's back. Joe, how are you? Uh, despite the sweep, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I gotta say, like, you got your team didn't have a good weekend. My team had a very fun weekend, one four out of five, but we're not talking about that right now. We're gonna talk about the captain here, and you're a big Yankee fan. You've watched all six so far. What do you think?
1: Well, admittedly so, even though I'm a big Yankee fan. I've never been the biggest Derek. Hysteric- cheater fan um i think this series has been pretty good i don't think it's even close to the level of the last dance um but it, it it's been all right it's been all right um i think there's a lot of like they need a villain and from episode one they clearly are putting a rod as the villain of the series um which i think is a little unnecessary but they need some type of drama i guess they picked a rod to be the guy to build the drama off of cheater with
0: Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I feel like for me, I think this is with what they've had to work with. I think it's too long. That's my personal belief. I don't think Jeter is compelling enough if he's not going to be, you know, like all like spilling tea or all dramatic. He wants to be polished. I think think Santa's is too long.
1: And I think that's a fair point. Um, You know, there's not been a lot of controversy around Derek Jeter's career in general. Like maybe the tax evasion stuff. But outside of that, there was really never any major scandal he was involved in now if you took the last dance you had jordan and robin you had Pippin. there's so much to build around phil jackson jerry krause In the story of Derek jeter it's really just kind of him yeah. and not to say he hasn't had an interesting story and amazing career but there's there was never much drama around him so they're they're really trying to manufacture it i think
0: yeah, I think they are. And I feel like it's a lot of trying gets get manufactured here in Part 5, which I think you and I feel like almost every Yankee fan has been the weakest episode of the thing so far. So I think we should dive in there. I mean, they start off where he left off with the 04 ALCS, where we kind of go over some pretty much everything we already knew about this. We got not much from Jeter. The one interesting thing I picked out of there was Joel Sherman's nugget. He basically says he talked to somebody at the Yankees at the time and said, Hey, we have to win this in game six. If we don't, we cannot get 27,000 games. So I thought it was, That was probably the only interesting thing I learned in that part of the uh, documentary.
1: I found two major parts wrong with the 2004 ALCS. Joe Torre blaming, like, Arod for not getting a sack fly, costing them the whole series was, like, ridiculous. Um, And the reason why they were so poorly set up for Game 7 was because Mike Messina pitched on short rest in Game 6, which also is a Joe Torre decision. Um, And they really don't talk about that at all. Now, they, they didn't... Like, they did not talk at all about game seven. Like, it just, they showed the home runs, but they did not talk at all about Joe Torrey panicking, rushing Mike Mucina to start game six in that series, leaving them with Kevin Brown and Javi Vasquez for game seven, which really did not make any sense. And Aaron had two home runs, I believe, in game four of that series. So, if they want to dump on Aaron for not getting in a sack fly, why is Derek Jeter bunting in that situation anyway? Like, so they never really went into the, that decision of toward a bunt Jeter, uh, who, of course, one of the best players in the team. Uh, they, they really, again, like, they tried to pile on A-Rod. Like, some guys can't win in New York. It's not as easy to win. Clearly showing A-Rod in every scene. Not mentioning Giambi or Javi Vasquez, Kevin Brown, like, all the new remade guys in that team. Um, so I, I thought that was weak. And they really kind of rushed right out of them losing. like. They they don't talk at all about what the aftermath. It was like, oh, they lost Game Seven, and now the, the New York media is horrible. Yeah. It was very rushed and very weird.
0: I thought. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I complained about this last week when I was I had Alan Austin. We talking about the episode. It's like, especially my complaint at the time was like, we went from the 0-1 team losing. I would have loved to have spent a May with G. You know, like, oh, you know, Brosis is gone, Tino is gone, Knoblock is gone, O'Neill is gone. All these guys that. You were with. We didn't even talk about it. Oh, you know, we left. They they left. Like I just feel like you can't. There's there's some weird choices being made in this thing.
1: And the 2002 season, they lost the Angels in the first round. Yeah. So like the first year of Soriano's breakout year, when he had almost he had almost a 40-40, he had 39 homers, 40 stolen bases. Like they didn't talk about any of it, like any of it. And the thing that I've noticed in episode five was a lot in one, two, three, and 4. They have, like, really deep dive into a certain moments in certain games. In Episode 5, they, there's really not many game moments they bring up.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Episode 5 feels like this is sort of like, oh, you know, we are, we don't really want to spend much time on 05 to 08 because there's not a like lot happening here at the Yankees, so we're going to dump all of our stuff that we have on Jeter's big topics in this episode, whether it was the media... It was like a filler episode. Yeah, I agree. It was a filler. It was the media, you got the gift bag story, and I think the stuff on... Jeter's like Jeter's like racial status and how he felt about right. that. Like that that was the most interesting of the three. But like all three of them I feel like would be much better a piece if they sort of weave these in throughout, like The Last Dance was doing with their stuff. Well, oh, yeah, they weaved
1: going. A-rod into every
0: episode. Yes. Like
1: every one. There's A Rod. So why couldn't I, I guess the gift bag story is like a funny one. Um, but they they spent so long on it. I'm like, all Jeter had to say was it's not true. And they could have moved on. But they—they they, it was on and on like it. They—they they were stretching for time. And um, Derek Jeter's agent, Glenn Close, is one of the guys behind this documentary. Is one of the producers. So it really doesn't surprise me how much film time he's been getting in this because who really cares about Derek Jeter's agent in the story of Derek Jeter?
0: Yeah, like, no one cares. Yeah, and we'll start with the media angle here. I mean, this has basically been my number one takeaway from this documentary side from the fact that he and I are not friends is that. Derek Jeter is not a big fan of the media. And basically, no. he's basically get all about, oh, like, I give them as little as I can. I don't want distractions. And then basically taking the time dumping them me, saying, hey, you know, like, all they want is headlines. that want it really happening. Basically taking a big dump on the media saying, this is the media's fault that things went wrong. It's from, like, 05 to 08. I'm like, come on, Derek. You're better than that.
1: And the thing was, I'll give Jeter a little bit of credit here. He kind of talks about it. I know we're doing five and six. But when they brought in Sabathia, I would talk how maybe I should have been more welcoming, welcoming, opening to my new teammates. And he kind of like gave will shade on himself, but they completely blow over from two, like the even the end of Joe Torre. Excuse me, was a little like rushed. Like Derek Jeter, as captain, won one World Series, and that was in two thousand nine. So they really don't talk about why the team never won with him as captain. And once the core guys left, as you said, and if you're going to talk about the story of the Yankees from 1996 to the end of Derek Jeter's career, there's a large gap where they don't win. And, you know, you had Jeter talking about when Nomar was talking about how we thought we were just as good. That's what losers say and kind of making that a statement, but you didn't talk about you as a loser failing for those years. So I thought that was a little weak.
0: Yeah, I think it was a little weak. The go you know, the gift basket story real quick, too. And the gift basket story was funny. Because remember, this is infamous story about how, yes. like, Jeter would bring, like, women to his apartment, and he would lead, send them out with gift baskets of, like, mer- like merch and swag and all of this stuff. And you had the editors of the New York Post that paid six talking about it. they say, oh, like, we never said it was sexual. It was just, we just said that, you know, he was a nice guy. And then, like, I thought Jeter was funny here. saying, like, oh, you know, like, I had to write that story then, but like you, Jeter again. This is another shot at me. I'm like, you know that that story's not gonna sell papers,
1: right? I mean, the thing there too was the woman they were interviewing was like the editor of the uh, Page like 2009 and beyond. Yeah, the, that, that story came out way before 2009. So why didn't they get the person
0: that wrote the article? I'm curious. I was so she was on staff at that point. So maybe she was. The, maybe the other person didn't want to talk to them.
1: Another weird omission: Aaron Boone is not in this series, yeah. which I thought was very weird. Well, I mean, he never. Giambi's not in this series. There's a lot of people that are just conspicuously absent. Maybe the Yankees didn't want Boone involved,
0: um, but I, I think the choices of teammates they've picked have been very interesting. Well, I mean, Boone has one moment, and and like I mean, you you want him? It's a big moment. Yes, you could have him on yeah. for, for two seconds. I could see why maybe you know we don't need it, but like Giambi, Matsui, not like, there. Well, I understand Matsui with the language barrier, maybe, but
1: translators exist. And it's, and Jeter talks about how much he loves Matsui, not
0: in the series yeah. at all. Johnny Damon could be another one. Right. Yeah. Damon,
1: like they, they, they got a lot, like they what? got Strawberry. They got like Gerald Williams, who unfortunately passed away, is a close venture junior, so he makes sense. Um, Tino's in it, makes sense. Bernie's in it, makes sense. There's just so many guys that are just not there. Yeah. which is very interesting.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is more of like a so. Hey, remember the great team that won four out of five and should have could have won a fifth one if we if we actually closed out the 0-1? I thought like that we're really leaning on that nostalgia, opposed to oh like here all teams Derek failed at, and I think this is, again more sort of hey Derek's involved. We're to emphasize all the good times and really kind of minimize the bad. And
1: then Jeter talked about the end of
0: two thousand one how angry he was. So what did
1: he feel that same anger through? 03, 04, 05, 06, 07, 08. Like, we not even there. Just I, not there. And the 2006 AL MVP race, like, Joe Sherman has, like, one line about more Nolan Ortiz, but that was a whole thing where Jeter would have won that MVP race if one guy didn't vote him sixth. Yeah. Not mentioned at all. Yeah. So, like, if you're going to include that line from Sherman about the 2006 AL MVP race, that could have been, like, Uh, A little bit of a segment, maybe that writer is brought in, like, hey, why did you vote Jeter 6th? The Mike and the Mad Dog clip, when they brought, no, you talk about the New York media, they defended Jeter there. They went to bat for Jeter and went after that writer, I think it was from Chicago, who voted Jeter 6th. Mike and the Mad Dog had him on that day, not mentioned. So, like, they trashed the media, trashed the media, but failed to cover the times when the media backed Jeter up.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. I think the most interesting part of the episode, which in my opinion, which a lot of Yankees don't disagree, is like, obviously we have spent a lot of time talking about like Jeter's status in terms of like racial status, like as a, as a biracial player. And we get the Gary Sheffield comments sort of weighing in like, oh, it's like white and black players treated definitely on the Yankees. We have the, the the most interesting point of this thing is the infamous line from Wallace Matthews in the doc where he basically says that I view Jeter as like color neutral, as, as like racially neutral colorless. and colorless. And like, I thought that was fascinating because this really got, and I don't blame you for being very mad about this and seeing how mad his family got. Like This was probably, I think, the most, actually, the most got out of Jeter in probably several episodes. I thought that was very interesting to see.
1: I thought it was like their take of the Gary Payton, Michael Jordan thing where they showed from the last dance when Jordan was laughing at the Gary Payton yep. thing where I can defend Jordan. It, I, I felt like they were trying to do that with Jeter reacting to something someone else said. 'Cause I don't think we've seen that old documentary yet, besides the Nomar thing, where he reacted to Nomar. Yeah. Um, and they had Jeter's sister react to it, her whole and the mother, the father. So that was a very, you know, powerful emotional moment. But that was the first time we have kind of seen Jeter angry, seemingly, on the documentary so far I found.
0: Yeah, I wish like this is one thing my problem with the doc in general is that like Jeter is a very carefully like manicured public image where he comes off his polish, he's like, I like Mr. Cool, I Keep my, my private life separate. I keep the sporting life separate. I'm a winner. I don't care about my stats. And, like, that's not a very interesting persona. It's like, I feel like the best right. artists are when Wilkins gets him to crackle it, like with that and like with some of the Nomar stuff. Like, that's the stuff I feel like gets the most interest. Uh,
1: I, as a Yankee fan, the thing that I've enjoyed the most was the parts about Gene Michael building the team, yep. you know, building uh, the 96, 97 no, with, with Buck Showalter. I think those scenes are great. Um, were they about Jeter specifically? No, um, he was a uh, huge part of the story, of course. But like you said, there, there's there's not that much that happened to Derek Jeter in his career that was that controversial. um So th- again, that's why they keep hammering the Aaron thing. And though no, Mike, you lived it too. It really wasn't that big of a story when they were on the team together, like you very rarely picked up the paper and saw Gina and a fighting. Like it's very manufactured. And I think, no, my, my girlfriend Lauren was saying no, this documentary isn't made for you. Yeah. And I kind of agree, like for us that grew up in New York, you know, we, we saw this with our own eyes. We kind of know this. It's not like you're really learning a ton and we kind of like, Oh, like this wasn't a big deal. Jeter and Aaron had a few things, like the drop pop-up, but like, there wasn't ever, like, every single day in the New York Post, Jeter uh, hates Aaron, Like, it wasn't really a thing.
0: Yeah, I I sort of blame this. This is also, I think, coming out of the last dance sort of thing, because, like, it right. was obviously back during the peak of COVID, the beginning of it, when everybody was home and nothing was going on, and we have this thing going for five weeks, two hours a week, everybody was going bananas about it, They had Jordan became, like, a viral star again, all the guys in the bowls were getting big deals, and then, be a lot of these like sports media comes like oh like this is audience fish we want to have these big documentaries going on about multi about national stars so you mean we got the Tom Brady thing which I think this is most similar to man in the arena where you know like it's a very polished product where like you're not getting a lot of interesting stuff out of the guy you had the a6 Mets got four episodes oh so that was more fun because there are more couple characters in that thing I think this is a trend I don't think it's a good one
1: I, I if anything they should have picked a rod I mean aaron works for espn he's been very open about his mistakes and there's a lot more drama in his story than jeter's
0: yeah but, but jeter is the guy who like a lot of right. 90s baseball fans identify it's like oh like let's hear about Derek jeter so i bring that nostalgia back for the 90s so i feel like that's what they're trying going for for sure yeah for sure yeah and, and you, get, you get to the end of part five i mean you get two quick things here this is something again we could cut down some of the stuff in the middle here we have we had basically rushed through Joe Torrey being let go. This is Jeter's first manager for, like, the first uh, – I mean, apart from the year with Buck, like, the first, the first like, 10, 11 years of his career, we kind of go yada-yada over that, and then we kind of go yada-yada over Brian Cash and saying, here's analytics, Derek, work on work on improving your game and your athleticism and all that. Like, we kind of raced through both of those. I wish we had more time on both. I think, again,
1: we talked – it was like a hodgepodge of an episode, and it, was very, it wasn't linear yeah. at all. Like, it goes from 2004 – you they go like back to Dave Winfield with some of the racial comments. So like it it was all over the place. And yeah, like Joe the firing of Joe Torre again. If you want to talk about really one of the bookmark moments of the Yankee story, you know Joe Torre leaving the team um, was huge. And yeah, yeah, Torre was gone, um, and that was it. Like they really could have spent some more time on that. Um, I thought another weird part of this of this episode when they tried to compare Fat Joe and Jadakiss to Derek Jeter, yeah. and like their level of fame. Yeah. like And like I, I, those guys do too. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. If you don't live in like the New York City area and listen to rap music, I don't know how many people know who Jadakiss is. I really don't know how many people know who Fat Joe is outside of like the New York City metropolitan area. If you listen to rap music in North Dakota, do you really know who Fat Joe and Jadakiss are? But you know who Derek Jeter is. Yeah. So, like, I thought Eli Manning wasn't a horrible comparison when they talked about uh, the you know, living your life and trying to be private. Like, Eli is a decent example. Eli is a very well-known sports family. Eli's a winner in New York. Now, this, the, the NFL is king. That kind of made sense as like a direct comparison. But like, Fat Joe and Janikish trying to talk about how the media was like bad to them. Like, how did who, who thought that was like a, a well,
0: comparison yeah. you could even try to make? Yeah. That was ridiculous. Yeah, not only that, I would have liked to hear G or say, you know, like how weird is it, you know, like Joe. I've had Joe Torre my entire career. Now I have a guy who I play with. Now my manager,
1: not even discussed.
0: Not discussed like and they it. also
1: kind of talked about like when they forced out Bernie and they forced out Posada. We're getting to that. And like the 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 the, the, the linear the timeline was all just wacky. Well, that was in the next episode. That wasn't really here. Right. I don't know, but I'm just saying when we talked about, you no, know, yeah. oh yeah, World Girardi, like they kind of. Poston talked about forcing him out. Like they, they got all these. Like Bernie was forced out. Could have been in this episode. They talked about, hey, one of the last members of that team, Bernie Williams, the Yankees shot him out the door. Could have been in this part if they needed to build that story more. Yeah, um, I, I think that should have been a moment in this episode. Bernie and Tori, two of the cogs of that team, are gone. gone.
0: Yeah, could have been in episode five. Yeah, this it is, would have
1: fit nicely there.
0: Yeah, this is I think an editing issue in my opinion where they didn't thread the story correctly. Right. I agree. All right. Let's go now on to part six here. I mean, I they start off with the montage of the old Yankees team closing, which again, yada, yada, that as well, where we went through the, the 08 season. Like, again, there's nothing like. Disaster time, season for the Yankees. First time in Jeter's career, he does make the playoffs. We don't get a comment from Jeter on that.
1: Didn't talk about it. No. Didn't talk about it. Um, Again, like a- another thing where this they, they don't bring up Jeter failing.
0: They Ever.
1: really don't. They, they, they.
0: Unless they they have to, they go four. They had to mention that.
1: Like 2001, they talk about because 9/11. 2003, they kind of rushed through. After no, Aaron Boone's their own, and they they lost to the Marlins. But Jeter does not really. They don't ever emphasize the Yankees losing, and they lost a lot.
0: I get, yeah, I'll get to why I think at the end of that. But this is another one where, like, again, I would have loved to hear. You know, like. Derek, you went to the playoffs your first, like, 12 seasons and you missed the playoffs here in the final year of the original Yankee Stadium. Like, how does that make you feel? Like, like I'm sure he's angry about it, but, like, why is this not in here? Because it makes him look bad. Yep. Simple as that here.
1: And, and then I, also in episode six, Mike, I know we'll get to it, but I'm going to jump the gun here. The steroid stuff. Yep. A lot of Jeter's teammates, Lemons, Pettit, Giambi, Jason Grimsley, not, you as know, big. Sheffield. Noblock, Sheffield, only A-Rod. Gets the blame. Only A-Rod. How? Yeah. How? Like, again, you talk about, like, an editing thing. It, 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 no, no, like, how do you only bring up A-Rod in the steroid era in baseball? Like, how?
0: I mean, if I'm A-Rod watching this edit, basically seeing that I'm being dragged, Ridiculous. The thing, I would be pissed.
1: Ridiculous. Ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to that in a second here. And then we get a little bit here, finally, like an episode late about like, we get like a little tiny bit about, oh, the failure of the mid 2000 Yankees. And this is where we get Joel Sherman talking a bit about, oh, you know, like Jeter wasn't like as receptive to his new teammates. And then we get Jeter saying, oh, maybe yep. I should have been better than these guys. Like, it was nice. We could have gotten more of this because I think this would have been nice to say, you know, I learned from this to become the better leader when I was the captain and we won in 09 because of it, but nope.
1: And the thing there is that, they really don't bring this up either. They never won with him as captain, and like once though, like you said before, like Tino out, Paul O'Neill retires, Brochus retires, they they turn over the new leaf, but they can't win. And, and Gino does not talk about that. Th- maybe this is why. None of it. Yeah. None of it. Besides a line, like maybe I could have been nicer, but like they really could have taken a deep dive into. Uh, you know, I did this, and I grew from it, and I learned from it.
0: Nothing. Nothing. And now we get to the A-Rod stuff, because I was like, oh, we signed our, all these guys, we're ready to go. And then we get the A-Rod admission, he did the steroids, and we see the press comments there. I mean, we're not shocked that G.R. Is pissed about this, and he basically said so. He's like, hey, I did not want to be there. I was angry at A-Rod for creating a distraction. But, again, to your point, it's fair. A lot of guys that G.R. played with did steroids, and A-Rod's the only one who gets thrown at the bus for it. Guys know, doc- Roger Clemens is in the documentary. Yeah. Clemens is in it. They didn't ask him about it?
1: Nope. And and also, A-Rod's first game back is the turning point of the 2009 season. I mean, it's the grand slam against Baltimore in his very first at-bat. The 9 Yankees got out of the gate, not great. Sabathia was terrible in Baltimore as opening day. They skidded out. I think they lost a series to the Washington Nationals, the last place team in the league at one point. A-Rod comes back, and the season turns around. Don't talk about it. It's about the clubhouse being more fun with Burnett's tying people. It, they, they Again, like, they – and then, I'll keep going forward, they go to the 0-9 playoffs. There's one line from Derek Jeter about a having a great playoff. They lose to the Twins without Arod. He had home runs off of Joe Nathan every night to tie the game for the ninth inning. Don't bring up a success the 0-9 playoffs. He had, like, four seventeen I believe, against the Angels or something ridiculous in the ALCS.
0: Don't talk about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the '09 9 playoffs, again, they got the yada yada because Jeter was not, like, the biggest, like, role, biggest, like, catalyst that run. That was A-Rod's, like, postseason. A-Rod. A-Rod had his finest postseason, in 9 and he's the re- he's the big part of the reason why the Yankees won that World Series. He They don't get to the World Series without him. Yes.
1: Like, at all. And, again, Cody Ransom was the Yankee starting third baseman in 2009. A-Rod comes back in May and then the season turns around, but you would have
0: never known it. Yep, you never would have. And we get we skip basically the year 2010, them losing to Texas. We get to Jeter's contract because this, I think, was probably the most interesting thing in the whole two hours. Aside That's day, pretty good. Where we basically see, we, we remember at the time where Jeter's 10-year, $189 million contract expires. They're negotiating, and Derek basically says, that, and this is something I didn't know. is like, hey, I don't care what the number is. We can figure out the number. Don't let it go public. And then it goes public, and it gets ugly, and then we basically see... This whole standoff comes out, they sell on the three year fifty one million dollar deal. He basically says at that point, like, I never really trusted Cash again the rest of my career. So I thought that was good for us to get that.
1: And I would love two of them to ask, like, who do you think leaked the number? Yes. Because again, he claims it was Cashman, his agent, Hal Levine,
0: and himself. And Levine's in there, I think. Well, who was that Mike? I think Randy Levine's in there too. Randy Levine could easily be the fifth person, but if there's
1: five people in the room, if you're the director, how do you not ask, hey, out of those five, like, who do you think did it? And for all we know, and again, not pointing fingers,
0: who knows if it wasn't Cheater's agent? Yeah. Like, we don't know. Yeah, we don't so, know. This could, have been, this could have been the agent saying, I want to get my guy more money. Right. And it could have been, hey,
1: what? This could have been the agent saying, we're not getting the deal we want. Hey, rest of baseball. cheater's out there. Come get him. But again, Close is one of the directors of this series. So th- there's definitely a protection of Jeter in the whole series, and you can obviously like he approved it, uh, his agent approved it, so you understand that. But when they talk about the leaking of the numbers, they don't ever ask. Like, ask Brian Cashman and ask Derek Jeter. Who do you think leaked the numbers? You have both of them right there.
0: Yeah, I think this is also like Jeter, not why to make the Yankees look bad, so – that is also a part of the issue, I think.
1: He's been—he hasn't been um in this series. He—he's ha- been quick to throw anybody under the bus. No, so, not trusting Cashman, obviously A. Rod. So uh, maybe you're right, but he's been pretty honest.
0: Yeah. Also, we got after that, we we find out basically the story about Jeter meets his wife for the first time. I thought that was pretty cute. Very interesting story there, especially for a guy who's not let his public life, like, private life, get out in the public very often. Very I thought it was nice for us to actually get that ba- that little bit of backstory about how they met and like how he worked hard to keep the uh relationship away from the public and Hannah Jeter basically saying it's, it's like, you not know, like the hardest part of the relationship was when he was playing because he was so focused on his on his uh craft.
1: Right. And it's really kind of the first time they talk about Jeter and women during the documentary. Like they talk about him parting a little bit, talk about page six, like that was something was-
0: that hit the cutting room floor
1: always in page six about who jeter was out with first kind of time they talk about it it humanized him i thought it looked it was one of his better parts of him looking good but again like they always talked about who Derek jeter was dating and throughout this again when they go into the new york media part that could be a great part to talk about Jeter saying they were always trying to go with my dating life and uh, i was always on page six at the game with somebody that did the tyra bank story um but, like, they really didn't talk about G- Derek Jeter's G- G- dating life at all. And that's
0: was one of the biggest things. Yep, one of the biggest things. I, remember, I saw the director online saying, hey, you think we're not going to talk about the gift basket? I'm like, yeah, we kind of figured you had to talk about the gift basket thing. But, like, like everyone was curious how, like, Jeter's G- dating, like, Minka Kelly, Mariah Carey, like, a bunch of famous women. Was it like, Jessica Beale like,
1: at one point, too? I, like, I think she was
0: in the mix at one point. Like, Yeah. D- um, they don't even bring it up. Not even a, like, I, I, I don't even have to go individually in names. Like, like, Hey Derek, like what was it like to have like to try and like be dating when you're like the most famous baseball player in the, in New York city and maybe the country.
1: I think even at one point years ago, ESPN made like a starting nine graphic of his past girlfriend. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Right, it was some, one of the papers did it again, not even brought up, but yeah, I thought the story was cute. I thought it humanized Jeter a lot. I thought his wife looked great in it. Um, this is a human being and a story she came off across well. Um, Overall, I thought that whole, that part was pretty well done.
0: Absolutely here. And we get to, obviously, the big turning point in his career is the ankle injury, the 2012 playoffs here. We get a lot on that and the rehab and how he tried to push himself back on the field too quick. And this is a big st- turning point here because we get through this ankle injury. And I think they were correct to emphasize this because Yankee fans knew it. The Yankee themselves said, like, we knew it was like once he went down, they were done. They were not winning that series. They got swept. Yeah.
1: They got swept. Did you, again? D- Detroit was one of the teams in the 2000s. Now so Bonderman and Kenny Rogers, they couldn't get past Detroit. Um, so it kind of, again, you want to talk about building a narrative. You could have said back then couldn't get past Detroit. One of the turning points of his career against Detroit. Um, and i another missed opportunity. You kind of could have weaved that story in together nicely. Um, but yeah, that ankle injury, I think every Yankee fan remembers that. Um, I personally do. It was You kind of knew they were cooked. I think Detroit was a better team anyway, with or without Jeter. I mean, Detroit swept the Yankees that serious. If Jeter's on the field, maybe they lose a five, maybe six. Um,
0: but that those Detroit teams were unbelievable. Yeah, that's true. And we do sort of use this as a way to transition. We get to some of like, oh, how did the season how the careers end for some of these guys and we hear like bernie williams talk about here not unless it's like oh i got pushed out at the end of 06 i want to come back they said no jorge says i got pushed out no religion ignore ignore the fact that both pettit and rivera basically retire on their own terms in 13 so i just thought that was and cool. we also
1: ignore the fact that posada yanked himself out of the lineup when joe girardi move him down the lineup it was in like 150 um but yeah again the bernie williams thing bernie leaves Pretty much right when Tory leaves, you could have made a nice little thing there. Foreshadow like the, sm- the dismantling yep. of the team that won those World Series, like piece by piece. You could like Paulie gone, Tino gone, Grotius gone. Out comes you know Roger Clemens goes to Houston, Pettit going to Houston, not brought up again. And then you could have gone to again this later down the road, but yes, Pettit and Rivera not brought up at all, and going out in their glowing yep. terms
0: yep and then we hear G you know like hey like I was going to like once I realized that the reality that this comes more like a job I wanted to I want to play once a jobs like basically the way he phrases like I decided to retire basically not let the Yankees shove me out the door and he tells like Susan Waldman and she's not getting get the message because she's playing with her dogs outside he tells Hal and then the Yankees like the rest of the Yankees don't find out until the next day the front office here we get the I thought this is interesting. He, a, he sticks to the Yankees and B we ended the episode on this whole discussion about he's struggling to start 14. So we drop in the order. And then he gets pushed a little bit saying, you know, like why didn't you volunteer yourself to drop in the order? And he says, that's a loser's mentality. Basically. Any question about like, I why aren't your team players. Like I'm a, I believe in myself. I'm going to do the job. I remember this is a big topic time, of like, times. Like should Jeter be dropping in the order? And that team was in pennant race. They had just acquired Alfonso Soriano from the Cubs. And they were in the thick
1: of the pennant race. And he had to play first and also leading to them eventually cutting in Warno Nunez. Um, But, you know, it's kind of like the unwritten rule or the thing you can't say, but Jeter was a detriment to the Yankees at the end of his career. They kept trying to go for it instead of rebuilding, similar to Kobe with the Lakers. You know, the end of Kobe Bryant's run with the Lakers, they kept trying to, you know, get one more team together, and it really was a detriment to the future of their team. And I would say the same thing for Jeter and the Yankees. Um, I know... That was a money move because the Yankees made a lot of money on Derek Jeter's retirement tour. They sold a lot of jerseys. They sold a lot of t-shirts. They sold a lot of hats with the little Derek Jeter tip of the cap retirement thing. Um, that was definitely a business decision. But the on-field product from the Yankees suffered from it. They could have hit the restart button. You know, Derek, thank you for everything. You broke your ankle. We're, we're going to kind of turn this around get the team you know, refreshed, renewed. Bring up some kids. They kept trying, they brought an Ichiro. They kept going. That was the Travis Hafner, the Vernon Wells years. Like the Yankees kept trying to bring in these old veterans to give it one last hurrah.
0: Never worked. Um, And really set themselves up for
1: failure for a few years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we sort of end this thing here. I feel next next week, I mean, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to get the last season. I'm sure we'll probably get a little bit about him going to the Hall of Fame. I wouldn't be shocked if they dragged the one writer who didn't vote for him to be unanimous. I would expect that to happen. That's definitely like the media hates me. So like,
1: well, then bring in the guy that voted him six for the MVP race. Yeah. The one it. thing I'm also surprised, Mike, I'm don't, I I know we're going back a little bit, but I'm surprised they didn't bring up Randy Johnson. Yeah. Because the Yankees trading for Randy Johnson after the 2004 season, huge. Johnson was mm-hmm. one of the biggest stars ever comes to New York, has the, the camera shoved in his face one another big thing they just randy johnson never happened
0: yep never that never happened either and i do think um, i'll just start of wrap up here my thought on this whole thing so far i'm gonna have something else on next week to recap the last episode is this that like i feel like this is just too much of you know like we're gonna show off everything Derek jeter does great and why he's such a great guy we're gonna only talk about failure and we absolutely have to we and we get cricked over the cold for ignoring it which is basically one oh four and the gift basket, sorry. That's really it. Like, we don't hear anything else of Jeter does bad. I feel like it's just, and this is, again, take a product, the creative control aspect of Jeter being, I mean, basically handed the keys to this. He says, like, I will give you something. I'll give you a little bit of fun stuff. I'm not going to tarnish my image. And the 2004, of
1: Joe Torrey blaming a didn't have a sack fly in yep. one game. Like, it, 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 they don't, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think you can clearly see who made this, um, it's uh, again i think it's been fine it, like you said before when you look at the brady the last dance uh, for uh, you know espn's done some great jobs a lot of those e60s are unbelievable they just put up that uh, unrivaled between the red wings and the colorado avalanche the two-hour hockey documentary which is unbelievably done espn knows how to make really good sports documentaries i don't think this is anywhere near their best
0: Oh no! This again. This is not like Michael Jordan being willing to open up, take like open up about deep stuff like his father's murder, like right. like his gambling addiction, like his issues with some of his teammates. Like he will, like he gave you gold, and, he, and he, right. he he had the same like basically like final cut approval that Jeter had. He was much more of an open book on this project than Jeter is on this one.
1: Because Jeter's, he talks about it the whole documentary. He's very guarded. He's very private. So when you're going to interview a very guarded, private person. What are you going to expect? And it's too—it's a little too fluffy of Jeter, I, I would say. It's really fluffy of Derek Jeter. And, and again, they try to paint a as this villain that just he really wasn't. Like, yes, he took steroids. Yes, he did that interview back in 99. Um, but, again, a talked about it. Or I confronted Jeter saying, are we good in the dugout? And Jeter's like, why are you here? That's being a bad teammate to me. And they kind of lost over that pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. It's clear they chose A-Rod the villain for the overall thing. But the media is clearly the second villain here. I mean, this yes. is the guy who created the player's tribute. which basically tells you all you need to know about, like, how is this going to go?
1: And the thing is, the media protected Jeter a lot. Yes, it did. A lot. The New York media was not bad to Derek Jeter. And I don't know what he wants but, you know, Derek Jeter was the golden boy. And he was his whole career. Very few times was Derek Jeter the bad guy of the Yankees. Like, I, I don't know why um, the media is being portrayed in that way. Because especially the new, new York
0: media took care of Jeter very well, I think. Absolutely. A lot of fun having you on, Joe. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media? I keep up with some of your stuff.
1: I'm on Twitter at J underscore Chaffee. Talk to me anytime. I'm always here. Absolutely. Even for you, Mike. Always here for you too. Absolutely, Joe.
0: Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Anytime, brother. The two minute drill. All right, two minute drill time. And the first I really talk on the podcast, the Kevin Durant thing, because with a story broker between episodes, so I put a blog post down on it. Things have really gone quiet because of the early, early rumors oh, Phoenix wants Kevin Durant. Miami wants Kevin Durant. The Celtics want Kevin Durant. No team so far is able to beat the Nets' rightfully high asking price. So there has been a stalemate here. And we heard towards the end of the last week that Durant was going to meet Nets or Joe Sy. So you're sitting here thinking, if you're a Nets fan, you know what, maybe there's going to be a truce here. Maybe Kevin sees, I can't get traded right now. Let me go back for this season. Maybe we can work on something after this season to make something happen. I can try and win a championship right now. That truce is not happening. You get a report yesterday. The athletic Sham Sharania reporting that Durant told Josiah that the only way he is back in Brooklyn without issue is the Nets fire both GM Sean Marks and head coach Steve Nash. Which to me, that's a complete joke. Earth to Kevin. Did you forget that you and Kyrie Irving picked Steve Nash to be the coach because you guys fi- got Kenny Atkinson fired in his, in your first season in Brooklyn. You don't even play for him. You were rehabbing. You got Kenny Fire and You said, we want Steve Nash. And you had that whole thing about how we're all going to coach the team, me and Kyrie and the other guys. We're going to coach the team along with Steve and the assistants. Yeah, remember that? You forget about how you insisted to Sean Marks that you needed James Harden. And Sean Marks said, okay, Kevin. He blew up his roster. He sent out seven draft picks, four key rotation players to get him remember when you got there with Kyrie and you said, we need DeAndre Jordan here on a bad contract? And Sean Marks said, sure, Kevin, I'll give you DeAndre Jordan. he can't play anymore. James Harden quit on the team, by the way. He forced them to trade into the 76ers or Ben Simmons because your guy is going to be a part-time player with vaccine status and create another mess for Brooklyn to deal with. The idea that Kevin Durant, who missed the full season, missed part of a second season, and really is the reason why the roster the way it is, actually walked into that meeting with Josiah and had the balls to throw the coach and the GM out of this bus is wild to me. We saw that Josiah was not going to cave on that. He put a statement out on Twitter after the meeting, after the report came out and said, I fully support my front office and coaching staff, and he's going to call Durant's bluff. Mark's is going to look for a trade for Durant and they're not going to get the trade unless they get every last asset from a team. And Durant. He does not have much leverage here. It's not like he has one year left on his contract and he can just sit out for a year and get the free agency. He signed a four-year supermax that kicks in this year. Now he wants out unless the coach he picked and the GM he basically told what to do are, 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 are still here. Oh, look, if this is the consequence of my own actions, the Nets are going to be basically daring Durant to say, you know what, like we'll work a trade you you can either show up and play basketball until that happens, or you can you know, sit down on the sidelines and just stay away from the team. And for a guy who's a basketball junkie like Kevin Durant, that's a good bluff to be calling here. What a clown show, though, by Durant. He continues to show why he's a Robin, he's never going to be a Batman, why he needed to go to the Warriors to go to a ready-made team with a title, and now when he couldn't build his own, he wants to go find another ready-made team to win a title with. Legacy flop for Durant, big time. With that, I want to end this week's show. I want to thank Joe Chow for hopping on the line here. Fun time talking about the captain. A very interesting two episodes we're going to talk about. The finale next week. We'll see what happens there. You want to go stuff like this podcast, clearly my look at the trade deadline for the Yankees and the Mets. The Yankees all did very well. The Mets, not as much, but we'll see if the internal rock calculations do pay off for them. Check out the blog over at justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. You also plug the Sky Guys podcast here. You can check that out. We are back. Tomorrow, actually, on the day of this podcast drops in the Justin and Suffering feed, me and Nick Friday got together. We talked about the fact that Andor, the live-action show, that Rogue One prequel, is being delayed for a couple of weeks. We broke that down, broke down the new trailer. So, if you want that podcast, make sure you get the Sky Guys podcast feed. Subscribe to it. All the podcast one mentioned at the top of the show. You also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's mphilips i p s three three one. And that's going to do it for... This week's show coming up next week. We're going to have a busy show for you. We're going to have our Jets camp look. Big situations moving there with the injury. Mackay Becton, the captain finale, hard knocks, and more. Probably a better week than Nationals fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast.
1: I'm out.